Well, good morning, and Happy New Year. Mike was uh, too busy celebrating to preach this morning, so he asked me to do that. I'm kidding. This was planned a while ago. (laughs) Anyway, uh, this is January 1st. It's a new year, and I got to thinking, what should I preach on that would be relevant to the new year? And So I could have like a New Year's Day resolution sermon, something like that. I've actually done that before. I didn't want to do that again. So I I just got to thinking, you know, in in the Presbyterian tradition or the Reformed tradition, often we talk a lot about uh, the fact that we are sinners and we are so sinful, we are totally depraved, and that means we can do nothing to please God on our own unless God's grace comes into our lives. And there's a flip side of that coin that is very true in our Reformed tradition as well. And I thought it might be good to begin the year by being reminded about that. So we're going to, and the best example I can think of of this in the, in the scriptures is Psalm 8. So we're going to look at Psalm 8 this morning as what I like to think of as being the other side of Reformed theology when it comes to who we are as human beings. <clears throat> and so if you would turn with me to Psalm 8, it's on... I forgot to check. It's on a particular page of your Bible. If you use the one in front of you, if you go like in the middle, you usually end up in the Psalms. So anyway, I'm sorry I didn't look up the page number. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength. Because of your foes, to still, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And you have put all things under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I still remember my first day of seventh grade. I graduated from sixth grade. I was king of the world, right? A school of 200 people, give or take. And uh, we were the oldest and the biggest, and we were ruled the roost, right? Except for the teachers. And then uh, go on to seventh grade. We, in, 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 Bal- in, um, in Northern Virginia, where I went to school, when you went to seventh grade, Lake Braddock Secondary School, that was seventh grade all the way to twelfth grade. And what that did for you, the school was laid out in a in a, well, I think it's a peculiar manner. It's a very long school, and each grade had its own section. And on the uh, left-hand side of the school, notice I did that. It was right for me, but left for you. I'm moving to the right for you. Seventh grade was up on the second floor, and eighth grade was on the first floor. And then there was another group right here that was ninth grade and tenth grade, and then there was eleventh grade and twelfth grade, and then a little bit farther was the gym on the exact opposite side of the school. So if you're in seventh grade and you're over here, 
You have to walk down to the 8th grade, walk through the 10th grade, walk through the 12th grade to get to gym. And every 7th grader had gym. And so what that meant is you were walking through a sea of people that were larger than you, and you got smaller and smaller and smaller as you went to gym, right? And you started to feel really small by the time you made it to gym class. And I remember, it may not have been my first day of school, but it was certainly my first week of school. I'm walking through probably the 8th grade or the 10th grade area, and I hear this crack. I feel it on the back of my head. This crack, it resonated through my entire skull. What somebody had done is flicked me on the head. This was a popular thing among the 8th graders and probably the 10th graders as well. To make you feel even smaller... You got to get flicked on the head as you walked by, and the, the hallway was so crowded, you couldn't even know who did that to you. And even if you could, you couldn't do anything about it because you were small. And so you, everything about those, that first week of seventh grade made me feel small. And David, when he looks out at the world around him, when he sees the stars, he feels incredibly small. This psalm has everything to do about the role that human beings have in this world. Our calling is to make God's name majestic, to praise him with our lives, to glorify him in this world. In our sinful nature, though, we don't, we don't live for his glory. We live for our own. We live to make our own name great. But the irony of this passage, and really the beauty of this passage, is that when we exalt Christ, when we exalt our God to make his name great, the side benefit is we make others great as well. And ourselves, that's the flip side of Reformed theology, is that we are destined for greatness because of who we are as human beings. God takes the small and does great things through us. In the end... No one is really small because we have a God who takes the small and accomplishes the great. We all have dignity and honor before our God simply because we are created in his image. So this psalm begins by exalting the majesty of God. The name of the Lord is majestic in all the earth. And he has set his glory in the heavens. So when we see the sun and the moon and the stars... We see the greatness of our God because of the greatness of that creation. And when we compare ourselves to the majesty of that creation, we can begin to feel incredibly small. And for us, we can feel even smaller because we have an understanding now of just how massive the universe is. I don't know if you've ever gone to a planetarium in recent years. When I went to the planetarium as a kid, the the planetarium just showed you the night sky. But now they zoom out and they show you our galaxy. And then they zoom out and they show you how our galaxy fits in the known universe, and you're teeny. And so you look at the universe, our galaxy is just a speck in the known universe, and then our solar system is just a speck in our galaxy, and our world is kind of a speck in our solar system, and you're just a speck among 7 billion other specks in this world. You know, Horton is who, right? People are people no matter how small. That's the feeling that we get when we see the majesty of God through the greatness of God's creation, we can begin to feel so incredibly small. 
And David had a sense of that smallness. But he tells us something wonderful. That even though we might feel incredibly small, he has made us just a little lower than the heavenly beings. Or as some of your translations might say, just a little lower than the angels. When compared to the rest of creation, he has made us just a little lower than the heavenly beings. He's crowned us with glory and honor. Despite what you might think when you look at the world around you, he's crowned human beings with glory and honor. And this psalm is a commentary on Genesis chapter 1, where God gives us our role in the world, where he tells us that we are to govern the world under his lordship, to be good stewards of God's creation. And he tells us that we're created in God's image. We are created in God's image with a task to govern the world for his glory rather than for our own. And the amazing thing about this passage isn't necessarily obvious to us. When we think about the way this passage would have been understood in the ancient world, language like this was actually quite common in the ancient world. The idea that, that people could be images of the gods was not terribly uncommon. There's an Akkadian proverb that refers to kings, though, as the, as the mirror of the gods, because they were the ones that enforced the will of the gods on earth. But those kings were not willing to share that status with their subjects. So the Akkadian proverb continues by saying that men are a shadow of the king. You see, the, the, the concept of an image of God may not have been rare in the ancient world, but the idea that that concept extends not just to kings, but to the entire of humanity was very, very unique because kings didn't want to share their glory with their subjects. They wanted their subjects to execute their will. And here's David writing this psalm, a king who's telling us, people like you and me, regular small people, telling us that we are crowned with glory and honor, just like David himself. That was totally unique in the ancient world. Each of us are crowned with glory and honor, and we are given an amazing task to make God's names great throughout the ends of the earth, to live as God's stewards as we exercise God's dominion over this world. And in so doing, we accomplish great things. That's the task that God has given humanity. Of course, we made a mess of all this. In the fall, we made a wreck of that calling. Because of our sin, we now live for our own glory rather than for God's. We deem some people greater than others. And we like to think of ourselves as perhaps greater than some others. And part of human nature is we want to keep the great great and the small small. And so we live in such a way we might just flick each other in the head to make ourselves feel better and make others feel smaller. And so we undermine the dignity that God gives all humanity. In a sense, we, we want to become like an ancient Near Eastern king rather than like David. We might have more sophisticated ways of flicking each other in the head, but we have ways of doing that. But what's fascinating to me is that in the New Testament, this psalm is actually quoted several times, and often it's used to refer to Jesus Christ himself. So, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, for instance, we're told that Jesus fulfills the psalm 
that he was made a little lower than the angels in the incarnation. But in his suffering and in his death and in his resurrection, he was crowned with glory and honor for us so that we might be able to live the life we were designed to live by living in who Jesus is for us. He lived the life that humanity was supposed to live, died the death that we deserved, and rose again that we might live as humanity was always intended to live, crowned with glory and honor. You see, the gospel is not just about forgiving sins. It is about that. But it's about so much more. It's about restoring humanity to its original purpose. It's about causing us to live for the restoration of God's creation, that his glory would fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so now the entire world is a footstool under the feet of Jesus that he might restore us to the task of governing the world for his glory. Every human being is created in God's image from the biggest to the smallest. And in Jesus, we get to see exactly what that means for us now. And we also have the hope for the full realization of what that means when he returns. But we are still capable of flicking each other in the head. And even within the church. I remember when I was in seminary, I had an internship in a local church. Not a church you know of and not a person you know of. It's certainly not this church. But I was in, I had an internship in a particular church. And at one point... My the guy, the pastor that was mentoring me, I guess, decided that I didn't have the right kind of gifts that he wanted to mentor. And he let me go. And he told me, well, he didn't use these words, but he basically told me that I was never going to amount to anything as a pastor. And he sent me on my way. And those words stuck in me. It's like a little flick in the head. Except I heard a lot worse. And they stuck in my ministry for years. As I started to wonder. Well, I didn't start. I was already wondering. But this was new enforcement of of my insecurities and of my worries that I might not amount to anything as a pastor. I felt small. You all have stories like that, too. And if we let those stories define how we see ourselves, we can literally become what we're told that we are. The good news is you don't have to be defined by that. You don't have to be defined by the way you've inflicted in the head. Because we have a Jesus that came and died on the cross. And he was flicked in the head for us. And that's an understatement. He was, so much more happened to him than just getting flicked in the head. He came and he suffered and he died. He was tortured and he died. The most humiliating death known in the ancient world, he died for us to restore dignity and honor and glory to his people. And if we're defined by that, it doesn't matter how many times we've been flicked in the head. We can change the world because of what Jesus has done for us. When we are defined by the cross, we know that the flicks in the head 
that make us want to feel small about ourselves. It's not real. Because Jesus died for us. And he gave us a task that is an amazing task. To spread God's glory to the ends of the earth. You don't just give that to anyone. <laughs> you give it to humanity because humanity is the is the race that God decided to use to reach the world. He thinks we're special. And he wants to do great things for us. And so David, he praises God for giving us that task of ruling. And in verse chapter 2, he says something also that's pretty amazing. He says, even though, even though David's a king... He tells us that he praises God because God has ordained strength from the mouths of babies. Think about that a minute. That he could shame the enemy and avenger because of the mouths of babes. There's some translation issues with this verse. But one thing we can know about this verse is that God is a God who loves to use the small to accomplish the great. From the mouths of babes, he can ordain strength and accomplish great things. The problem is this. The world doesn't operate this way. The world operates in a way to keep the great great and the small small. We want to make ourselves greater, and if it's at the expense of the weak, that's okay. The world doesn't live by this biblical principle that's found throughout the scriptures. And so our calling is nothing less than turning the world upside down for the sake of accomplishing his purpose, that this world would function as God's kingdom rules, where the least become, where the where the greatest becomes the least, and the Son of Man himself will sacrifice himself. For us, I read a book recently, a few years ago. It's called The Rise of Christianity by a guy named Rodney Stark. It's one of my favorite books. <clears throat> and in, in this book, he studies what it was, the social factors that caused Christianity to become this teeny tiny little Jerusalem religious band and become the dominant force, the dominant religious force in the Roman Empire in about 300 years. From the time that Jesus rose again, To the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, Christianity became the dominant religious force in the ancient world, and it started with just 12 people. And for a lot of Christians, or the Christians' history there in that time, Christianity's history, it was small. But it became huge. And what were the factors that caused this to take place? And one of the things that he noticed is that Christianity spread throughout the urban centers of the ancient world. And to give us a picture of what that was like, he gives us a summary of what it was like to live in an ancient city, and he chooses Antioch. Antioch being the city that uh, Christianity first took hold, the Gentile city where Christianity first kind of took root. And he describes what that city was like. And I'd like to share it with you because I think it makes the point of how the early church lived out this psalm. Antioch was a city of about 150,000 people. The city of Antioch was two square miles. Think about that a minute. 150,000 people living in an area of two square miles. 40% of that two square miles was taken up with public buildings. 
So really, it's 1.2 square miles that 150,000 people lived in. That's a population density, density of about 195 uh, people for, per acre. That's about twice of Manhattan. Of course, in Manhattan, you have big high-rise buildings. In Antioch, the tallest buildings were about five stories. So just think of how crowded the city of Antioch would have been at the time. Now, add to this the fact that there was absolutely no sanitation. Okay, when you had to get rid of your waste, you know what you did? You dumped it out the window. And there could be people walking by. Okay, there was absolutely no sanitation in the city. Water came in through aqueducts. But the aqueducts, even though they brought relatively clean water, they would sit in cisterns. So you had standing water collecting disease and collecting pollution. The water was undrinkable. There were earthquakes. Earthquakes were common in Antioch. Buildings were not built to code. (laughs) And so you have these buildings collapsing. Guess who had to live on the top story? The poor. The rich got to live in the lower stories because that gave you greater access to escape uh, the collapsing buildings. Rodney Stark estimates that these cities, like Antioch, could not sustain the population. The mortality rate in cities was so high that these cities could not sustain their own population. It was only through immigration, people moving into the city, that these populations were sustained in these cities. And this is what he says. He says, given their limited water and means of sanitation, incredible population densities, I'm sorry, and the incredible population density of humans and animals, most people in the Greco-Roman cities must have lived in filth beyond our imagining. In other words, Antioch wasn't even unusual. It's a typical city. And that's where Christianity took hold. That's where Christianity grew throughout the ancient world. Disease and smallpox, like like smallpox, spread throughout the Roman Empire. Guess who who it was that cared for those that came down with smallpox? It was the Christians. Most non-Christians isolated themselves. They quarantined themselves to avoid getting uh, sick. But if they did get sick, what they would end up doing is uh, isolating themselves from people that could help them. Christians reached out to others that were sick, and many of them died caring for the diseased. But when they got sick, they had people to care for them as they cared for others. And they survived at greater rates than those that quarantined themselves. And so population grew with respect to unbelievers simply because they cared. They reached out to those in need. It was the Christians that took a stand against opposition, uh, the, the oppression of women. It was the Christians who, set, who had standards against abortion and infanticide, as most mothers didn't want to kill their children. But if you came into the church, you were protected from that. It was the church that governed, uh, that, that allowed uh, elderly women to not be forced into remarriage simply because their husbands had died. And Christians flocked to the church simply because they were being cared for. And the faith, in the face of death and oppression, Christians offered the hope of the gospel and they reached out in love and in service to the world around them. And they turned the Roman world upside down. Christianity turned the ancient world upside down. 
in the midst of intense poverty and filth and disease and violence. Christians transformed the very fabric of cities because they reached out to each other in love. And so Rodney Stark concludes his book with this sentence. He says, Finally, what Christianity gave its converts was nothing less than their own humanity. There are so many Christians in the United States today. Are we doing that? Are we turning this world upside down? Because we love for the sick and the injured and the poor and the weak. God uses the small to accomplish the great. And we can be so damaged by the little flicks in the head that maybe we just find ourselves willing to live a life of mediocrity. To live a comfortable life so that we can die with our pensions and able to see our grandkids. We're being called to so much more than that. We can transform the world. If a little group of 12 could expand and transform the Roman Empire, think of what we could do in the United States. Think of what we could do in the world. But the gospel has to work on us. The gospel has to change us. I would encourage you this week and really this year, what were the flicks in the head? What were they for you? How have you been made to feel small? But let's not stop there. Because as we see that we can be forgiven and restored through Christ, those things don't have to... They don't have to control us any longer. We're also given the opportunity to use the gifts that God has given us to transform the world around us. And we can use our imaginations... There are so many ways that we can live in ways that are transformative in the world around us. And some of them are very small, but very significant as well. Just helping people, sharing our faith. We live in a world where getting flicked in the head is a way of life. But the gospel turns that upside down so that we can turn the world upside down. And society can change because of the love and service that we offer the world. As we enter into the sin and the brokenness of the world around us, because God entered into the sin and brokenness of our lives and transformed us, we can transform the world as well for his glory and for everlasting peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how great you are in our lives. And that even though you are so majestic in comparison to us, you don't look at us as being small, that you want to accomplish what is great through us. We pray that you would work in each of our hearts 
that we might be able to see how much you love us and how deeply you value us and how deeply you can make us into something that is so great and wonderful for this world. And then give us the imagination, give us the insight to be able to see how you might use us in this world to transform it by your grace, that the world might reflect your glory and that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord might cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.